that's really difficult to do in a field experiment. It's because of the number of animals and, and land or whatever you need. And so that, that becomes pretty interesting that we can vary different management practices at the same time and see what the interaction is among those different changes. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. So welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. And today's guest is Dr. Philip Lancaster from Kansas State University. Philip was born and raised on a family livestock and crop farm in West Central Illinois. He earned his BS degree in agricultural science from Western Illinois University in 1999 after which he worked as an assistant manager of a 2,400-head capacity feedlot in Illinois for three years before returning for his MS degree in animal science in 2004 from the University of Missouri and a PhD degree in animal science with an emphasis in ruminant nutrition in 2008 from Texas A&M. Prior to joining Kansas State University, he has held positions at Oklahoma State, University of Florida, and Missouri State University. His research efforts focus on developing strategies to enhance sustainability of beef production through identification of improved management practices. Dr. Lancaster also teaches animal nutrition and beef production courses in the Department of Clinical Sciences and Animal Science. He has two boys, Levi, who is 10, and Caleb, who is 7. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. Good to be here. And um, I feel like we kind of came around in sort of a similar time frame and stuff. So we were having a little bit of a catch up before we started hitting record here and stuff. But you've um, kind of become a little bit of a jack of all trades down there, Philip. Yeah, I have a little bit. And especially with some of the moving around I've done, I've, I've had to develop my skills in several different research areas, which has come in handy in some some places, but also kind of makes you feel like you aren't as... I'll say uh, in depth or, you know, as knowledgeable on one specific area as you would like to be because you haven't had that time to focus on that one area as much. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before we hit record about some of the things that you are focusing on right now. And there's some really cool stuff that I think uh, we want to share with our audience. So our audience members are folks who might be raising cattle themselves, either from the cow-calf sector or the feeder side or stockers, um, which you've done a little bit of work in kind of all of those sectors now. So I want to start by talking about some of the um, modeling work that you've been working on there. So can you walk us through a little bit about, um, maybe start by telling us a little bit about the Beef Cattle Institute there at K-State and kind of your role there and how you've kind of led into pulling together some of the the data from some of the large yards like you were telling me about. Okay, so the Beef Cattle Institute has been around for a decade, a little over a decade, um, and it was developed as a way for to bring together experts across colleges and departments to focus on beef cattle production. And so it's a collaboration between the College of Veterinary Medicine and the College of Agriculture here at Kansas State University. And so we have um, people with uh, animal nutrition, animal health, um, uh, agricultural economics, um, animal genetics, uh, all different facets of 
beef production come together to focus on problems that are pertinent to the beef industry at the time. Right. And this really has kind of developed into sort of a systems approach. You know, it's cool that you're talking about how health and nutrition might feed together. We were actually just talking to uh, Dr. Brian Lubbers recently, who would be a, um, uh, one of your cohorts there uh, on mm-hmm. the veterinary science side. Um, so tell us a little bit about this kind of big data collection uh, project that the Beef Cattle Institute's been working on from the feed yards. Okay, so for the last several years, we have kind of developed some relationships with commercial feed yards around the country where we collect their operational data um, on a daily basis through their normal data collection channels. And then we are able to use that for different things with their approval. And so uh, some one of the things that we are interested in using it for is to look at the association of different management factors and, and cattle characteristics with animal disease. Um, and so a focus for the last several years has been on bovine respiratory disease and looking at those factors that impact or are associated with cohorts of cattle that are, uh, or sorry, that have a high level of morbidity um, for respiratory disease. So are there some factors, since you've had the data for a few years now, are there some factors that are starting to emerge as things that put, you know, maybe besides maybe some of the more obvious ones, right? Like put together cattle or cattle that didn't get castrated until the day they showed up in the feed yard. Um, What are some of the risk factors that you guys are identifying? So there are some some typical ones. One of the things that we don't have on a lot of these data sets is anything about the cattle before they arrived at the yard. So a lot of times we're collecting, we're working with data that we got at arrival. And so some things that, that tended to stick, uh, stick out that are kind of what you would expect, lighter weight cattle um, and cattle that have, arrive in the fall of the year uh, typically stand out. Um, with higher, which is not too surprising, but then um, we've been looking at some different things. So one thing that that has kind of stood out is the feed intake, and so we've done a little bit of stuff with feed delivery data, um, and we're just starting to try to get into that since I've joined the group in the last couple of years. And we did a study here uh, recently published in. Um, translational animal science where we looked at feed intake patterns during the first 15 days on feed and the association with the uh, morbidity level of cohorts of cattle. And so what we did was we used a predictive analytics approach where we're trying to predict whether a particular cohort of cattle is a high morbidity or a low morbidity group. And what we classified as high or low is greater or less than 15% total morbidity for the whole feeding period. And one of the the interesting things that came out of that was that the, we put, I mean, we put all kinds of different characteristics into that um, model and the things that stood out time and time again were the change in the feed intake from day to day in the first week. So, sorry, excuse me. Let me take a break so you can cut that out. (laughs) 
the uh, change in feed intake from day two to day three, from day four to day five, were things that stood out as highly important predictors of whether that group of cattle were going to be a high morbidity cohort or not. And one, the one thing that's a little bit frustrating with this type of analysis, though, is it's a predictive model where you don't really get to understand the biology. It just predicts how, how well you are correct. And so what you're doing is you're predicting how accurate am I at, and precise am I at identifying a high morbidity cohort in that first week uh, that they are there. Um, and so what we don't really know kind of the direction that that change in feed intake is occurring, but we know that it is very predictive of whether that's going to be a high or low morbidity cohort. And so we think that could be very useful in down the road in making some management decisions um, of how to handle that cohort of cattle. Okay. So when you said you're not sure which direction, so then it's not necessarily that between day three and day four, there was a bad feed call and we have the opportunity for those cattle to consume a lot more groceries the next day than we intended for them to, or that somebody did a feed call in the wrong direction and we shorted them the next day and then tried to overcome that the next day, right? So really kind of roller coaster intakes. Is this really come back just as something as simple as day-to-day variation in feed delivery is what's a, a, a culprit for later BRD? Well, it could be, and that, and you're you're right on track. We can't identify the cause of the change, um, and we we can't really ident- identify the, um, like I said, the direction. And what I mean is whether, like you said, whether it was too much or too little from one day to the next. Um, so back up in a, in a normal statistical analysis, we, we did this. We would get a coefficient for that change in feed intake, and that would let us understand whether the um, change is a a major decrease or a major increase in feed intake that is predictive of a high morbidity cohort. And, but in this type of predictive modeling, you don't get those coefficients. Those algorithms are, we, we use the term black box. You, You put stuff in and you get an output out, but you don't get to see what happens in the middle. And so that's a little frustrating from a scientific standpoint, but from a from a practical standpoint, it gives us a, a better way to put together lots of different predictors and indicators into a model that may impact the outcome. And so that's that's one reason we've gone to that approach. Well, as ruminant nutritionists, we're intimately familiar with dealing with the black box, right, Philip? That's what we call the rumen all the time. Like, I don't know, some you put stuff in, some magic happens, right? Like, I swear that's what <laughs> yeah. the grad students think sometimes. Um, well, okay, so let's let's think about that a little bit more. I'm I'm really intrigued because I've seen lots of negative impacts down the road after having cattle have a rough start when they first come into the feed yard, right? So, do you think that there is something happening at the level of gut integrity being compromised or, you know, so a barrier function issue or something there that later is making um, them more susceptible to BRD. I I have a limited understanding that there is definitely like a gut lung liver axis that happens where damage to one could kind of create some signals between the other. Do you think that that's what's happening? Well, I don't know. Um, there's, but there's, there's some interest and there's some ideas that 
you know, acidosis or a, a subacute acidosis, acidosis challenge could cause inflammation and that could then cause reduction in immune competency and then lead to that animal being susceptible to respiratory disease. Um, and so that's, that is of interest, um, that, and then also from that, that same angle that, you know, what are we doing to that, um, that gut, like you said, are we, are, is that change in feed intake? Is that change is change in diet from cattle coming off of grass going on to, um, a more concentrated starch diet? Is, what kind of changes is that happening? You know, we, there's been in the recent years some research in the dairy industry on um, gut integrity and, and things, like, especially in young calves, but not a whole lot been done in the beef world. Um, and so that's one area that we are interested in um, from that angle, but also from the, the other angle as far as liver abscesses go. Right, right. So uh, Greg Penner from University of Saskatchewan in Canada would have definitely done some of that work with gut integrity. And um, I think that he's gotten a little bit more into some of the larger beef animal kind of stuff. But a lot of his stuff has been with younger with younger dairy calves. So maybe dairy is a good place to transition into talking a little bit about the dreaded liver abscess, because um, we all know we're seeing more of the dairy beef crosses coming into the yard. Um, I used to joke, even though I'm in northern, you know, the northern plains, I had a student one time who was like, I really want to feed Holstein stuff. Can I, will you just fill up the yard with Holsteins? And I looked at him and I said, Christopher, the only thing that's black and white that can come into my feed yard is a baldy. <laughs> and we now have like three grants funded to do dairy beef cross work starting next year. So I've been getting lots of teasing text messages from Chris saying, I thought you wouldn't allow anything that was black and white other than a baldy in your yard. <laughs> well, well, lucky, luckily for you, if, if they're Angus cross dairy, they, they come out pretty much black. They don't have a whole lot of white on them. It is so, so crazy <laughs> to see how you know the genetics of what went into that beast. And, you know, they can look everything from straight Holstein to straight Angus and everything in between. So if anybody thinks they can go to the sale barn and look at that beast and say, oh, I know what he is, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them you can tell, but the others you can't. Yes. Yes. I feel like you can always tell about a few months down the line when his head is twice as long as his neighbors. You're like, oh, there's the dairy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're joking a little bit here, but um, liver abscesses is one of the things that anybody who has fed Holsteins um, has known for years is something that you have to contend with. But as we're starting to get more dairy beef come into the feedlots across the country, we're starting to see potential issues with liver abscess here. And there's been lots of work historically um, from K-State, from Dr. Nakaraja's lab and others focused on liver abscesses. So tell us a little bit about the latest and greatest in liver abscess research, Philip. Well, so a couple of different things that are, that are relatively interesting um, from um, Dr. Nagaraja's lab and just the, the hypothesis of, you know, we feed Tylosin to prevent liver abscesses, but yet on average, we still get 20% of the cattle have a liver abscess at slaughter. So one of his hypotheses is that it may not only be the rumen, but it may be the colon and the hindgut is playing a role in that liver infection where we're pushing more starch into that animal. We're getting some hindgut acidosis 
and that is causing a gut barrier integrity problem in the colon and allowing bacteria to cross the gut barrier and then um, reside, set up residence in the liver and, and create an abscess. So that's a very interesting hypothesis that he's working on there. Um, and then we're also trying to look at on this beef dairy system, where during the production phase are these abscesses occurring? Where's the insult that is resulting in this higher level of liver abscesses? Is it something during the calf ranch phase? Is it something in the grow yard? Or is it later on in the finishing period when these animals are just eating a lot more starch? And so we're, we're having a, a larger um, gut integrity problem during that period. And so we're trying to do some research to, to look into that question. Okay, so I want to come back to that in a second and ask maybe how you're trying to address some of that. But for any of our, be back up a second for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the terms of things like gut integrity. Um, so if we think about our gastrointestinal tract in the ruminant animal, that rumen has actually lots of different cellular layers. It's actually a relatively thick and robust tissue, which it needs to be, right? It sees all kinds of stuff that that animal consumes from that Holstein that we were joking about. It might be wire or bolts or whatever else his tongue decided to pull out of your feedlot that day. Um, but the point is it needs to be pretty tough, right? And then when we get down into the small intestine and then down into the things like the cecum and, and others, we're talking about a single layer of cell there. So there's, it's a much, much weaker tissue. It's still strong, but it's much more easily damaged. And I think that lends a lot of credence to this hypothesis that damage might be much more readily occurring downstream of the rumen. I've thought about the small intestine. I'm also, there are literally miles of absorptive surface area in the small intestine if we were to unwind it and stretch it all out in these ruminants. So there's a lot of places for that damage to occur. Yeah, and and there are a lot of pathogenic bacteria that reside in the gastrointestinal tract, and that barrier between them and the internal components of the animal are is critical. I mean, and so if we do things that damage that, that allows those pathogenic bacteria then to cross that barrier and cause an infection in the animal. And so that's part of our, our research question. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's easy for us to forget that actually just that barrier in itself, like our skin and, and then that gut lining is one of our number one host defense mechanisms, right? Keep stuff out that we don't want to get in. It's like my, yes. what I always teach in nutrition, isn't nutrition silly? We eat something big, we chew it down, we digest it down, we break it down to single things like glucose or an amino acid or a mineral, we absorb it. And then we often send it to a place and rebuild it on location. It seems so <laughs> inefficient when I teach that to students, but I'm like, Hey, you only want little stuff in and that's how you create the barrier, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about, so I'm super interested in this. Um, one of our challenges, of course, with feeding dairy beef crosses is that they're on feed for 150 million days. I mean, a year <laughs> feels like a hundred. Yeah. It feels so long. Um, how are you guys trying to narrow down what part of that production system? So you talk about everything from the newborn calf to the calf ranch to the first, you know, days in the yard all the way out to finish. How are you trying to narrow down where and there those liver abscesses might be occurring? So we're, we're taking a couple of different approaches. Um, one is to collect management data from the calf ranch, the, the grow yard, the finish yard, 
and connect that with the prevalence of liver abscess at slaughter. And so then we could see what segment of the production system is most associated with those high prevalence of liver abscess. So we collect data from lots of different um, operations that use different management practices, and then we can see what is associated with uh, that high prevalence of liver abscess. And then the other approach we're taking is necropsies. And so we are necropsying cattle that just naturally die throughout the production system, and particularly in paying special attention to the liver, taking some liver samples, and looking for signs of abscess or signs of inflammation and and other um, immunological changes in the liver of animals that die throughout the whole production system. And so kind of interesting, kind of a pilot project to that. This last summer, we did that at some uh, yards in Kansas, and these were beef animals, not beef on dairy cross, but we necropsied about 400 calves over the summer that died at, at these yards. And um, what was interesting in a couple of different things that was interesting, um, we saw liver abscesses all the way from the first few weeks on feed all the way to the final stage. Um, but we had a higher prevalence later on in the feeding period than we did calves that died early on in the feeding period. Um, one thing we saw also saw was that none of those cases that had a liver abscess had any gross gastrointestinal lesions. There was, there was no ruminitis that we could identify grossly um, or hemorrhagic uh, intestines or anything like that on those cases. We did have some ruminitis. We did have some hemorrhagic abomasums and intestines, but those were not on cases that also had liver abscesses. Um, so, so we found that very interesting. Um, and then our overall prevalence was lower than what you expect at slaughter. So our overall prevalence was about 6%, whereas at slaughter, we typically expect about 20%. So whether that is because these calves are dying before they get to slaughter, most of them, or it's because that you know liver abscesses don't necessarily kill very many cattle. And so the, our sample population was not necessarily obviously wasn't representative of cattle that still lived. Um, and so, um, but that was, that was sort of interesting things that we saw out of that. And we are, we also took some gastrointestinal tract samples from those liver abscess cases, and we're doing some more microscopic analysis of those to see what's potentially going on in that gut barrier that we just talked about. So if you think about some of the calves that you would have had necropsies on at the very early part of the feeding period, would you be talking about like some 400, 500, 600 pound calves that should have been primarily on forage based diets at that time? Yes, probably. Um, I don't know. I need to get the diet information on that. But yes, we did have um, young calves or lightweight calves um, that we necropsied. Um, if you look at the data relative to arrival weight, now this is this is a plays into a days on feed thing too, but but cattle that arrived between five and seven hundred pounds had a higher prevalence of liver abscesses than cattle that arrived at a heavier weight. Now that's also a days on feed component there too. So we haven't done the full analysis to put all those factors together yet. Sure. Um, but just looking at the descriptives, 
that's, we see that increasing days on feed increases the prevalence and lighter weight cattle have a higher prevalence of liver abscesses in that, those necropsy cases. Interesting. Yeah, I've always thought, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because it, it kind of, again, blows in the face of starch is always the devil in this situation, right? So, and it's so interesting too, because up here in like in the Northern Plains, most of our feeders don't include Thailand in their diets and, and really never have because we don't feed steam flake corn diets and or we've always had relatively conservative cattle feeders, right? This was the birthplace of where corn was marketed through the beef animal, right? And so, well, you know this being an Illinois boy. So, <laughs> um, you know, we and we tend to have higher amounts of uh, fibrous byproducts and things like that in the diet, right? Um, so yeah, I think I think the liver abscessing is super interesting, and and I think we can learn from some of the work. Uh, so like Lance Baumgard working on some gut integrity things with like hindgut acidosis and others. He's in my office suite here, and I think there's opportunities for us to continue to learn about the more basic work that the dairy folks have done and translate that over to helping to explain this phenomenon um, of liver abscesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean yes, and I. It, think it's a it's a pretty big issue and there's um it recently with the, the advent of this beef on dairy cross but also with the push to regulate feed grade antibiotic use and so that has stimulated a lot of research i think in this area to try to figure out this problem and some solutions to this problem where we know that probably someday in the future thailand availability is going to be limited yeah, absolutely. So another one um, of your kind of many things that you work on there that we wanted to talk a little bit about was some of the work with this cow herd simulation software. Um, so I teach an advanced nutrition class. I don't teach our cow-calf management class, but um, I know you have teaching roles in animal nutrition and beef production courses. And it sounds like not only is a research tool, but the simulation software could be a pretty cool teaching tool. Yeah, it, it could be a teaching tool. Uh, let me give you a little background on it to begin with. Um, so we developed the, the software or the program um, to simulate a cow herd over time. And so a couple of things that are unique about it is that it is dynamic in the fact that it builds over time. So changes that happen in a particular production cycle affect what happens in the next production cycle. Um, and then it's also stochastic in that it models each individual cow within a herd um, and it uh, adds variation. Not every cow in the herd is modeled exactly the same way. Um, and so it adds variation in mature size, in milk, milking ability, um, pregnancy rate, you know, those kind of things. Um, and so we get a distribution of outputs from this model that then let us evaluate probabilities. What's the probability that I'm going to have cows that, you know, don't get bred if I do this management practice? What's the probability that um, I'm going to be profitable if I do this or that, um, those kind of things. And so instead of just getting a single answer, we get a range of answers that then we can use then to estimate what's the chances of this or that happening if you Im implement a certain management practice. So give us a couple of examples. Um, you know, are you talking about things like 
we have a drought year, so that could be something you could put in. Or, um, you know, we had a heat wave, and so I had a bunch of cows cycle back and, you know, ended up with a lot more opens at the end of the of the breeding season than expected. Give us, a, our listeners, a couple of examples of, like, uh, inputs, I guess you'd probably call them, that you would put into the simulation. So, yes, we could... Well, we can model lots of different things. It can be changed and tweaked, but yet those examples that you gave, yes, we can do those. And one of the interesting things that we're trying to do is we're trying to couple this model with a, a soil and, and plant growth model. And so that then we can model a full grazing system with a cow-calf production um, system at, as part of that whole system. And we can see what happens with soil carbon. We can see what happens with nitrogen phosphorus losses. We can see what happens with cow pregnancy rate. And one of the things that we're really interested in is this resiliency to weather extremes and things like that. So droughts or very high rainfall or um, just, and even not just temporal variation, but also spatial variation, you know, is the same system effective in one part of the country versus another part of the country. Um, and so how can we try to better adapt our management system to local environments? So where do you get, where do you get the data to feed that kind of system? So the, the soil and, and plant growth model, it, the data that feeds it are um, weather data from the local weather station, wh whatever you want to use there, and soil data. We typically get we can either get soil data from soil samples, or we can get soil data from the um, Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, and but then, um, like the plant parameters and all that that kind of stuff to model the plant growth has all come from empirical experimental research on different plant. Uh, species and, and varieties and things like that. There's a list of, in, in that model, there's a, a huge list of different plant species that have parameters that can be modeled. Um, and then on the animal side, again, we pulled a lot of information from published literature to build a, to build a distribution of what's the probability of a cow getting pregnant each um, estrus cycle. Um, what's the probability of a cow aborting what's the probability of a calf dying before weaning uh, what's the distribution the genetic component to it we you know what's the this distribution of the the variability in um, mature size uh, weaning weight uh, milking ability those type of things that that all go into that model that then we the model um pulls a number out of that distribution for that particular animal. And then that's that, that's the genetic component for that animal. And then that's what happens to that animal throughout the, the, the whole um, simulation of her life, whether until she comes up open um, and is cold. This is totally going to date me, but um, do you remember the Oregon trail software? <laughs> <laughs> for being in oh, school. Yes, my boys found a card game Oregon Trail at the store a couple weeks ago 
and we've been playing it. And then they realized, hey, there's a computer version of this game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a DOS version or whatever it was, right? Uh, like arrow yeah. over and arrow down, and oh, you got a snake bite and you died, or you got diphtheria or whooping cough or something like that. And all I could think as you're talking about this, Philip, is like your like undergraduate students being like, oh man, heat stress. Like you know, twenty percent of my cows came open again. Like ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I have not tried to use it in the classroom yet. We've been using it for research. I have not tried to use it in the classroom. One thing is it is it's um, it's not simplistic. Let me put it that way. It's not the interface. It's not made where you can just put in some numbers and it runs. The, the interface is basic R programming software, and you have to go in and change code and and whatever to to change the parameters. Yeah, I've messed around with R a little bit. I'm lucky to have uh, Dr. Apahami in the office next to me to explain what the heck I just did wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I think eventually it could be a kind of a cool tool, but also even as a, just as a research nerd, like it'd be very cool to go in and be like, what if I mess with this? Oh, that actually has one of the biggest impacts on this. So if I look into my carryover year, we need to go back and do some research on that factor that we just messed with to see how we can improve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like that. It's it gives you a a good guide for field experiments, um, and then also one thing that I like about it is that it lets me evaluate lots of different scenarios at the same time, or di- lots of different changes in management at the same time, and look at the interactions that happen. That's that's really difficult to do in a field experiment. It's because of the number of animals and, and land or whatever you need. And so that, that becomes pretty interesting that we can vary different management practices at the same time and see what the interaction is among those different changes. Yeah, well, that's very cool and such a neat potential tool for systems research since systems research is, by definition, extremely complicated. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And so one of, you know, one of the things we did with it, Stephanie, was we looked at some different changes and how it might impact sustainability of a cow-calf system. Um, We looked at four different parameters or four different changes that we could possibly make um, and how those would impact the outcome. Um, The four things that we looked at, one was what if if we could reduce the maintenance energy requirements of cattle, um, if we could decrease the postpartum interval of the cows, if we could uh, increase the digestibility of forage, and if we could increase the forage productivity per acre, and how those things impacted two two main parameters we looked at. One was what is the impact on the amount of feed required per pound of calf produced, and the other one was what was the profitability or return on investment um, of that that cow herd. And the there's a couple things that came out that were a little bit interesting, a little bit unexpected. You know, we always think that reproduction has a very big impact on herd profitability and outcome. But when you're already doing a pretty good job with your reproduction, the, the amount of change that we could make in the postpartum, postpartum interval had very little impact on the overall outcome. Um, it's, the things that, that really hurt you is when you have one of those bad years. You know, and and you end up with a lot more open cows than you normally do, and those are the things that hurt you when you're already doing things well. Um, 
the thing that, that stuck out the most was changing the maintenance energy requirements of the cow herd. Um, that, that made a huge difference in two aspects. One, the cows could maintain body condition easier. And two, calves had higher net energy for gain available after accounting for maintenance requirements. So weaning weights were higher um, in, in that aspect. And so that was pretty interesting um, that then, and those, that those had that big of an impact because you would think that forage production would have a pretty big impact. And, and it did, it was second in profitability of impacting the um, profitability of the cow herd. Um, but then another interesting thing that we saw out of that analysis was the f- changing the digestibility of the forage. And I never really thought about this before, but you know, cattle consume more forage if it's a highly digestible forage. So what that ended up doing was it ended up decreasing our grazing days. They ate more forage per day. And so we had a higher winter feed bill if we increased the digestibility of the forage. And so that, that was kind of an unexpected thing that, that popped out of that it was like, oh, huh, well, maybe, you know, that's not a real super great thing to do um, in some situations. You know, what's interesting about that, Philip, is that when you think about the times where forage availability is within the farmer's control, right? If you think about drought or water availability or or things like that, there's only so many things that we can do, fertilize, et cetera, to actually have that really be under control. And in the range situations, it's basically not under your control. But what we can control whether we want to or not, right? Everybody looked the other way is the size of our cows. <laughs> so I was thinking when you were talking about this, the, um, the, uh, simulation software is like, what percent of the time are the cows actually weighing 1400 pounds when they're, um, we all say that they weigh 1250. It's like a hundred percent of the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Everybody likes to think they have 1200 pound cows, but we don't have very many 1200 pound cows out there anymore. At least not in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have feelings about, you know, the fact that if we want them to be 1400 or 1500 pounds in the feedlot, I'm not sure we can go aggressively select for small cows who have lower maintenance energy requirements, but aren't going to give us the beasts that can structurally hold 1,400 or 1,500 pounds in the feedlot. So again, systems, right? We all need to be a part of that decision-making process. Yeah, there's a there's a trade-off there. And I think historically, you know, we've made a lot of improvement in beef production per animal and reduced our water use. We've reduced our carbon footprint over the last 30 or 40 years. And a lot of that is because we have increased beef production per animal by having a larger, larger animal at slaughter for each cow that we're feeding to maintain. And so going the other direction may hurt us in those in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think it's got to be a a holistic conversation. And even back to things like increasing incidence of you know, liver abscesses and stuff. Yes, they're probably on feed 30 to 60 days longer than they were 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even more than that. But they also, they're bigger and they have a bigger drive for intake, right? So they're, I think, more hogs in the bunch and they're more likely to have that variability in intake. So absolutely. Well, I know that you are actually involved in a couple of other beef podcasts that our audience might be interested in learning more about. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? 
Yeah, sure, Stephanie. So the Beef Cattle Institute has a couple of different podcasts, one that's been going on for about three years, and that is our Cattle Chat podcast. And that that podcast focuses on uh, several different topics each time, ranging from nutrition to reproduction to health to just general management of beef cattle operations with a focus pretty much toward producers. Um, and then we're, we're starting a second podcast we're calling Bovine Science. Um, and that podcast is going to be more in-depth, one-on-one discussions on different topics. Um, so again, kind of the same topics, repro, economics, nutrition, health, but we're going to do a one-on-one and go more deeper. And that's geared more toward the professionals out there. So veterinarians, um, you know, sales consultants, sales technical reps, those types of people that would be more interested in more in-depth uh, discussion on different topics. Awesome. Well, those both sound great. I think I might have to check out the new one when it comes out. Um, it is time to our famous three. So we're getting ready to wrap up here, Philip, and we've got three questions that we're trying to ask all of our guests at kind of the end of our time together. So are you ready for these? Okay, I guess. We'll see <laughs> okay. what I can come up with. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite beef resource? I guess, well, I guess being a nutritionist, I've got to say the NRC, the NRC. Is, <laughs> is, is one of the, the top ones. Um, but then, yeah, I think that's obviously a pretty big one. And then just, um, you know, journal articles. Okay. What is a book not related to beef that you're currently reading? Oh, man. Um, let's see. So there's one that we have been reading through kind of as a group on predictive analytics in medicine. And so not related to beef at all. It's human medicine. It's, but it, you know, as it have applications to what we're trying to do in veterinary medicine. Nice. That's my favorite thing about science. We can learn so much from the human people as I like to call them. Yeah. <laughs> they have all the money to do stuff. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you for doing that expensive, big research so I can apply it to beef cattle. <laughs> yep. Exactly. All right. Third and final question, Philip, what is a trait of someone, you know, that has allowed them to be successful? A trait of some, Oh boy, that is a really good question and a really tough one. Um, uh, I would have to say a couple of the people that I work with at the Institute um, that have been around for a while. Um, one of them is just a very, you know, open-minded type of learner. He doesn't, he, he has his bias, but he's not afraid to call out his bias and, and, you know, learn something new and, and, and keep digging and keep going. And then the other one, is very good at um, putting other people ahead of himself, you know, helping out um, somebody else and making other people look good um, that are doing things. And so I, those two traits are are really, I think, something I've seen that makes for a very successful person in research environment. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's pretty cool that you get to work with those individuals. Yeah, I've, I, I've got to say that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm biased, but I've been lots of different places in this environment at the Beef Cattle Institute is one of the best collaborative environments I've ever been a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Well, Philip, this has been great. We really appreciate your time today. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Steffi. I really appreciate it.